Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Hannah. All right. So tonight we have a great one. Much of medicine is taught using what we would call clinical pearls. So these small bits of freestanding, clinically relevant information, often shared by a a wise mentor uh, based on a lifetime of experience and observations. Other times, they're sort of backed in pathophysiology from a new and interesting paper, even if the mechanism isn't known to the teacher or to the learners, they get spread. And on this podcast, we've covered a number of clinical pearls, including cancer is a hypercoagulable state, azithromycin is anti-inflammatory, and calcium stabilizes the cardiac membranes in hyperkalemia. Each of these pearls is true, even if most of us might not be able to fully explain why. But other clinical pearls don't always have a good physiologic underpinning. So on this episode, we are going to be debunking a pearl, and we'll talk about one in particular. We're going to tackle the pearl that furosemide, or Lasix, is poorly absorbed in decompensated heart failure due to gut edema. So, Tony, take it away. What is wrong with furosemide being poorly absorbed due to gut edema? Yeah, you know, as we'll see... um there's actually some parts of this pearl that are accurate, right? So for example, furosemide definitely does suffer from poor absorption. Um, But what makes this pearl, what makes this statement incomplete or even wrong is the assumption that gut edema has something to do with it. I don't know that I feel like before we dive any deeper, I do want to confirm that this is something that the two of you have heard or even said yourselves, because if it's a pearl, it's kind of like part of the idea behind this is that they're relatively ubiquitous. So Hannah, is this something that you've heard or said? Oh yeah, this is like one of the most common pearls in the sea. And even in the ICU lobby? Yeah, I learned it, taught it, definitely. Okay. Do I understand it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we're here, right? So Tony, where should we begin? Yeah, I, I, it probably makes sense to start with the part of the pearl that's accurate. So you know, it is true that furosemide can be poorly absorbed. And we often talk about absorption of drugs as it relates to their oral bioavailability. And so, you know, if you look at the example of furosemide, its oral bioavailability is really variable. Uh, It ranges from as little as 10% in some studies to up to 100%. And this variability is both between patients and actually within the same patient. So if, if we're looking at two different patients, one might have really high oral bioavailability And another person might have very low oral bioavailability. But it's also the case that if there's an individual patient, you're looking at just one patient, they might experience periods of high and low bioavailability themselves. And one key is that even those without acute heart failure and acute heart failure decompensation can still have high degrees of viability. So it isn't even necessarily the congested state that leads to variability in the absorption of this drug. So it sounds like we're going to be sort of really focusing in on the role that absorption plays in furosemide's oral bioavailability. And that's going to be sort of the crux of this question and debunking this myth about gut edema. So I guess it sort of makes sense to start with understanding how furosemide is actually absorbed. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit more about the anatomy of its absorption or side of absorption. I I can't offer too much about the actual mechanics of it, but I think the site and the anatomy ends up being really important. So furosemide is absorbed both in the stomach and in the proximal small bowel. And there's some data suggesting that there's greater absorption in the duodenum, in the proximal small bowel, than in the stomach. 
And this point is something that we're going to return to later because this anatomic difference has, I think, relevance to the real reason why uh, there might be a difference in the congested and decongested states. Hmm. Okay. So furosemide is absorbed in both the stomach and the duodenum, probably a little bit more in the duodenum. And absorption is very variable both between patients and in the same patient based on time. Do we have a sense of if not gut edema, then why absorption is so variable? There's definitely a number of factors that, that are going to play a role here, but I think I'll just mention one because it's, it's highly relevant, and that's food. So there's really good data that the absorption of furosemide is negatively affected by food intake. Basically, that means that less is absorbed when furosemide is taken with a meal. And as you might imagine, a lot of our patients take their medication with meals, so you can see why this might be important to know. And this, I'll say, is also one of the reasons why torsamide is my preferred loop diuretic. There's actually many, many, many reasons why torsamide is my preferred loop diuretic, but this is one of them because torsamide is unaffected by food. Okay, so food negatively impacts the ability to absorb through mostly through the duodenum, it sounds like. But what about specifically patients with heart failure? Um, you know, which is sort of the the focus of of this episode. Yeah, so I think it makes sense. Let's you know turn to that population more specifically. And as we think about this question of the um, absorption and bioavailability of, of furosemide in compensated and decompensated states, there are really key three studies that help us to sort of answer the question. And they again specifically look at patients taking oral furosemide and their uh, the absorption and bio bioavailability of the drug when the patients are decompensated, and then again when they're compensated. So the first study was published in 1985 by Vasco et al., and it included just 11 patients uh, with heart failure. And so what the authors did is they gave these patients oral furosemide, again, during the decompensated state, and then they gave them oral furosemide again when they were compensated, and they looked at the absorption, the concentrations, and all the sort of pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic things you might want them to examine. Very cool. So what did they what did they find? Yeah, so they found that when compensated, furosemide absorption was faster and the peak plasma concentration was higher. So it sounds like we could say that there was decreased absorption in people who had a decompensation. And, you know, at first blush, that's that's what that might suggest, right? If absorption was faster and the peak concentration was higher when they were decompensated, it might seem that the overall absorption was less. But that's actually not uh, what the authors conclude. And, and I think if you look at the data in more detail, um, I think that's the correct conclusion. Because the study authors also found no significant difference in the area under the curve for plasma concentration when decompensated. So basically what that means is the total amount of drug that was absorbed was the same whether you were compensated or decompensated. In this study, it may have taken a little bit longer for that to happen, and the peak levels may have been a little bit lower, but the total amount of drug that got into the body was the same. So as I imagine the two area under the curve graphs, in the patients who are decompensated, the peak is later and maybe lower, but the same total amount of drug is absorbed, whereas in patients who are compensated, it is higher and quicker that all of the Lasix or all of the furosemide gets absorbed. Yeah, that, that's right. And you know, this, this idea that the total amount of drug abs, uh, being absorbed is the same in the two states, this, this finding was actually confirmed by a later study. They found little difference in the total absorption of furosemide between the compensated and decompensated states. 
And in fact, this second study found no difference in the speed of absorption or the peak concentration, right? So the two things that, that the first study found, right, a little bit slower, lower peak, the second study did not find that. They found all the, the absorption seemed to be the same in the decompensated and compensated states. And in fact, this is the largest trial of the three. It's still relatively small, only had 44 patients, but still the largest. Okay. So what about that third study? It's actually very similar to the second. So the, the, the third study, you know, again, compared compensated and decompensated states, and they found no difference in the time to peak serum concentration, peak serum concentration itself, or the total amount of furosemide absorbed. Okay. So to sum up, we have three small studies, all of which found that the total amount of furosemide that's absorbed doesn't decrease whether the patient is in a decompensation of their heart failure or not. One of the studies did show a delay in absorption and decreased peak plasma concentrations of the drug, but the other two actually didn't confirm this finding. So is, is that a fair summary? I think it's a perfect summary. And you know, I'll add one other interesting and important observation that all three studies made, and it's that some patients do appear to experience delayed absorption, even if in aggregate, there appeared to be no difference. Like they all actually show this like, you know, patient eight, that patient eight, even if in aggregate in studies two and three, there was no difference, patient eight seemed to have a delay in a decreased peak concentration. So again, get into this idea that like, Furosemide is a weird drug in terms of its oral bioavailability. Got it. So that might maybe support this idea of this high variability in furosemide absorption, even at the level of individual patients, either within that patient or between patients. So maybe some people would be more susceptible to decompensation. Is that the case? Did they have a sense of whether these patients were decompensated or if gut edema could have led to any of the observed difference? Yeah. So this idea that Maybe for a subset of patients, the decompensated state affects the absorption. That that I think, if you look at the data, it seems seems to be a reasonable conclusion. But I found absolutely no data for this effect being due to gut edema. Right. So that clinical pearl of you know in decompensated heart failure, furosemide is isn't absorbed because of gut edema. I found absolutely nothing saying that gut edema is the key thing. Instead. Many propose, and I think the best evidence is for delayed gastric emptying as being the culprit here. Yeah, I was not expecting that, Tony, right? I mean, and I think to sort of, if we're going to throw this out there, we're going to have to provide some evidence that acute heart failure is associated with delayed gastric emptying, right? Um, But then again, not that I'm not convinced and that I don't trust you, but like I do, it would be, you know, it seems like we do need to make that connection. Well, I can't offer a new version of a pearl without actually providing some support for it. Well, that, I mean, right? you could, and you could, but it could, right? I mean, I, if this pearl is, is bandied about and, and no one's like, "Well, provide for me the evidence before I like spew it off to the you know the people I teach next." I mean, and, and to your point, I, I don't typically associate uh, decompensated heart failure with delayed gastric emptying. It's like when you think of the things in the setting of heart failure, that's not the top of my list. But there are um, a few lines of evidence that support this idea that decompensated heart failure is, in fact, associated with delayed gastric emptying. So the first is is a set of experiments in mice where they injected BNP, and this leads to delayed gastric emptying. And I think important for this discussion, it also leads to decreased furosemide absorption, right? And heart failure is obviously a state associated with elevated BNP levels. Second, again, studies in mice. Uh, they induced left ventricular dysfunction 
uh, via myocardial infarction. This too leads to delayed gastric emptying and decreased furosemide absorption. And then third, um, patients with decompensated heart failure are also have increased sympathetic tone and decreased parasympathetic tone. And this too probably leads to delayed gastric emptying. So there's a few different ways in which the state of decompensated heart failure might lead to de- decreased gastric emptying. And it's definitely true that in the couple of these studies, it was shown that that association led to decreased absorption of furosemide. This sounds compelling and also confirms my priors that all quality of life issues in the hospital come down to letting people sleep enough and making sure that food is going in and out of them at regular hours in a regular fashion. I can, um, I can support so, that. Yeah. Next, we'll talk about the bowel regimen. Um, but that is actually really compelling. So summarizing, there is experimental kind of physiologic evidence in mice that acute decompensated heart failure through maybe a not entirely clear mechanism can cause delayed gastric emptying. So then bringing that back to furosemide, is that, how does that fit into the furosemide absorption in the duodenum versus in the stomach? So I think the idea is that if, if the, the stomach takes longer to empty into the duodenum and the duodenum is the preferred site of furosemide absorption, this could de- lead to the delayed to- absorption of the drug. I, I think that's the general idea. And there's actually support for this explanation, and it comes from an unexpected source, and that's Roux-en-Y gastric bypass patients. So these patients have rapid gastric emptying, and as a result, there are studies demonstrating that they also have a faster time to maximum plasma furosemide concentration and earlier naturesis. So that's basically the exact opposite of decompensated heart failure. Like you give them oral furosemide, and they absorb it rapidly, and they get a quicker naturesis. I, mean, I wouldn't argue that you just go ahead and do that instead of IV, but it works really fast because it that furosemide gets emptied right into the duodenum. So you know, the I'd say the more commonly sort of associated things with delayed gastric emptying are things like neuropathy, sort of you know from diabetes, or things that sort of alter gut motility, like erythromycin. You know, have you found any uh, evidence that those drugs or conditions can sort of affect um, furosemide absorption like heart failure? Yeah, I really tried. I was hoping I might find something like, oh, if you give erythromycin with furosemide, like it works better because it gets emptied into the duodenum or that diabetic neuropathy and gastroparesis leads to issues with furosemide absorption. But I just, I couldn't find anything. doesn't mean it's not out there, but I couldn't find it, unfortunately. That seems like another retrospective study to put in our exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, is delayed gastric emptying the only piece of the puzzle here? Are there other reasons why acute decompensation could lead to a change in furosemide absorption, which are not gut edema? Yeah, there are definitely other explanations. So some of the others that you'll see in reviews include things like decreased renal blood flow and therefore decreased delivery of furosemide to the nephron and altered blood flow away from the sites of absorption, the stomach and the small bowel. And I'll say, you know, gut edema is often mentioned in these reviews, but I could, again, find no experimental data supporting this explanation. It's mentioned, but I can't find citations that are supporting that claim. And Tony, you mean that uh, you didn't find any evidence that gut edema affects gastric emptying specifically? Both that and and uh, absorption of the drug, either one. Okay. So you've made the case, Tony, that furosemide absorption, it may be delayed during decompensated heart failure but that the total absorption is unaffected. 
by this delay. So either way, you know, I guess my own sort of clinical experience, either way, I'd say, you know, I we do sometimes see that patients in decompensate heart failure, they may they may not respond as well to oral furosemide. So what's what's up with that? Yeah, I mean, there's got to be a kernel of truth to the pearl uh, because I don't think it would be so persistently stated. And you know, my um, experience is the same too, right? Patients come in and they're taking their oral furosemide at home. And they come in and we put them on IV and they diurese. Um, yeah, they're sand in there somewhere. Exactly. Um, but I will say that there's a natural experiment that took place about a decade ago that sort of casts doubt on these observations that you know the oral furosemide isn't working. Uh, when the patient's at home. Um, and so in 2012, Ontario faced a shortage of IV furosemide. I mean, they must have been freaking out. Um, and so during this period, oral furosemide was used even in decompensated heart failure. And despite the shift from IV to PO furosemide, the hospitals saw no difference in the length of stay less than six days, ICU admissions, 30-day readmissions, or 30-day mortality. I think probably the key outcomes for heart failure. Now, of course, they did see a dramatic rise in the use of oral furosemide. And so this suggests that oral furosemide can work even in decompensated heart failure. So, I mean, what did they, like, does this suggest that maybe oral furosemide could work if we were just doubling the dose for some patient that we knew the bioavailability for and tripling it for another patient who had worse bioavailability? Like, could we get get through this problem by just giving high enough of a dose of oral furosemide? I think it does mean that. Um, that's kind of the way I in- interpret this natural experiment. You know, given that there's like little diuretic or natriuretic effect below a, a plasma threshold, right? Uh, that you know that concentration, that threshold concentration. You know, it could be that the reduced peak absorption that we saw in one of these studies, you know, ends up mattering. And, you know, for all three studies, there were individual patients where the, the peak concentration was a little lower. But, you know, I think about like what happens when these patients are hospitalized. It could be that the benefit of hospitalization isn't so much the use of IV, but the fact that we just give them really high doses. I often see patients come in and they're taking 20 milligrams of PO furosemide. That's like their home dose. And we switch them to 40 IV, right? That's four times their home dose. And I don't often see patients get admitted and placed on four times their home dose in an oral form, right? Go from, hey, this guy takes 20 at home, let's give him a dose of ADPO. Like that just doesn't happen. And I'll say that the study out of Ontario suggests that we might be okay doing this. It, it could in fact work. But there are like, you know, other benefits to using the intravenous form of furosemide too, right? I mean, it acts more quickly. So like when somebody's in flash pulmonary edema, you don't really want to wait for them to like swallow the pill and have it get absorbed, right? You want it just right in the vein. And then also like you don't have to worry about this sort of variable bioavailability, which seems to be a real problem with oral furosemide, right? Yeah, I 100% agree. And, and I wouldn't argue that we shouldn't use IV furosemide in the setting of decompensated heart failure. I, I just think that let's say you were in a, a some sort of an out, outage or a shortage like Ontario and all you were left with PO, I, I think you'll be okay. You just might have to give a lot higher dose. And I think the key thing for the like the kind of the main idea of this episode is I think we should change our clinical pearl. All right. So what would you change it to? All right. So this is half-baked, uh, but we'll go with it. So um, in decompensated heart failure, furosemide absorption may be delayed as a result of delayed gastric emptying. It has nothing to do with gut edema. I, I, I fully it. support. I, I love it too. I fully support this, Tony. I, I guess you know the other pearl and the other time that we 
invoke gut edema in clinical practice, I think, is when um, patients in acute, you know, decompensated heart failure have sort of the vague dyspepsia, right? They sort of their appetite decreases, and you know, sometimes they're they're nauseous or even vomit. And I, I wonder if this, when we say, oh, it's just gut edema, if it's actually the same problem that it's just delayed gastric emptying. I mean, doesn't it make a lot of sense that delayed gastric emptying might make might give you that same symptom of sort of nausea and just general GI discomfort? Oh. A good loop diuretic cures everything. <laughs> I love it. Do you have any take-home points for us, Tony? Yes, uh, I certainly do. Uh, so although furosemide absorption uh, may be delayed during decompensated heart failure, the total absorption of the drug appears less affected. Now, the delayed absorption may be related to delayed gastric emptying, but it probably has nothing to do with, quote, gut edema. And then finally, not all clinical paroles are totally accurate. Uh, so have a little bit of skepticism whenever you hear one. Tony, that's blasphemy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tony, thank you so much. This was uh, eye-opening and enlightening. That wraps up another episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thank you, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at curiousclinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash curiousclinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been The Curious Clinicians. Curious Clinicians.